God sent serpents to poison their mortal bodies that they might learn what deadly poison had infected them through Satan, that ancient serpent. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You're listening to the Holy Joy Sermon Podcast. Visit us at holyjoys.org to find more resources for a holy, happy church. In our Bibles, we are turning back to the book of Numbers. Uh, I've been preaching from uh, texts in our one-year Bible reading plan. I've enjoyed our Wednesday evening discussions. Uh, Just spent a couple hours yesterday exploring a question that was raised just this last Wednesday, trying to get a better understanding of something in 1 Samuel, and just grateful for the opportunity to dig in together. Uh, But we are just turning back a few chapters to Numbers 21, Numbers chapter 21, to a familiar passage uh, to many of us about the serpent in the wilderness. And because it is Palm Sunday, uh, the Sunday that set into motion the events leading to Christ's crucifixion, also called Passion Sunday, um, we are going to be taking some time here to reflect on how even in the Old Testament, the cross of Jesus Christ was prefigured, and that we were given this uh, promise, this assurance, that if we look in faith to him, we will live. I'm going to let you remain seated this morning for the reading of God's word in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, beginning at verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, so many things in this life, in this world, are grasping for our attention. Our eyes are looking It's so many things. We're looking at our country. We're looking at the news. We're looking at the problems in our family. We're looking at sometimes ourselves. We're looking at worldly pleasures. We're caught up in so many things. I pray that you would help us to look this morning at your son, Jesus Christ, and to fix our gaze on him so that whatever else we see in this life is seen through the lens of Christ crucified, that all would be submitted to his lordship. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Notice in this passage that Israel committed a serious sin. They spoke against God and Moses. Verse 4 says the people became impatient on the way. This was the root cause of their problems. And they spoke against God and against Moses, grumbling and complaining. We talked a lot about this together as a group, time and time and time again. This was Israel's besetting sin, grumbling and complaining. Often when we think about besetting sins, we think of things of an addictive nature, like uh, pornography or drunkenness, whatever. 
But grumbling can be addictive too. And this was Israel's besetting sin. They grumbled and complained. It was a sin of the tongue. God had proven time and time again that he would provide their needs. But Israel was ungrateful. They lacked faith. They were anxious about their life, what they would eat and what they would drink, and about their body, what they would put on. They became impatient, and they sinned by speaking against God, their provider. Verse 5 notes that Israel's sin was also against Moses. You know, Moses was a faithful leader. He was obedient to God's word. He was doing what God had called him to do. And so when the people grumbled against Moses, God's representative, they were grumbling against God too. Now, we know that Moses wasn't perfect. In fact, Moses sinned grievously when he struck the rock. And pastors and church leaders aren't above failing or sinning, and and, uh, they aren't above being respectfully questioned. And if they abuse their charge, they're to be confronted and rebuked and deposed from their office. I believe that with all my heart, but when a pastor or a church leader like Moses is faithfully following God and we speak against them, we sin against God himself. Hebrews 13, 17 warns, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now listen to this next part of the verse, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We're told time and time again about how Moses groaned under the weight of Israel's stubborn and self-centered attitude. They just didn't get it. We know that sins like lust and anger and adultery and drunkenness are serious and deadly, but impatience, ingratitude, speaking against God, grumbling about church leaders, these are serious sins too. They're like a deadly poison that infects our soul and can infect the church. And God will punish these sins of the tongue, slander, gossip, and grumbling. James 3.6 warns the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it is set on fire of hell. And so notice, secondly, the deadly consequence of sin. God sent venomous serpents to bite and kill his grumbling people. We learn uh, about Israel's repeated sins and how God judges them differently in different occasions. You know, Korah's rebellion, they get sucked up into the pit, into the ground and disappear. I'll take that any day over this one. I hate snakes more than Indiana Jones. I hate them with a perfect hatred. I don't care how small they are or how large they are. I don't care if they're poisonous or non-poisonous. I want to kill them immediately. I I, uh, heard about somebody who had snakes in their house. I said, if I had a snake in my house, I would immediately burn down the house and I would move to Alaska. (laughs) No, not really, but maybe close. I would definitely, definitely leave. I hate snakes. Anybody else hate snakes? I know there's some people around here who are really tough and, you know, picked up snakes as a kid, Maryland. And I just, I am not, I cannot handle that. I just, anyway, snakes, snakes. I think uh, the good part is, is that I wouldn't get bitten. I would have died from anxiety attack before they could get to me. But there's a painting of a bronze serpent, of the bronze serpent, this biblical story by Van Dyke. And uh, Van Dyke depicts the snakes in the camp and they're everywhere coiled around people's arms, crawling up somebody's coat, 
biting a, a man's thigh and even falling from the sky in large numbers. It's a horrible scene. It doesn't get much worse than a plague of poisonous snakes. And it's no coincidence that God chose serpents and that the whole Bible is framed by this story of a serpent coming in and poisoning God's people. The Bible begins with Satan, that old serpent, deceiving Eve, and God's great promise to crush the serpent's head through the seed of the woman. In fact, we could say that the entire Bible is the story of how God keeps this very promise through his son, Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation speaks of Satan, that ancient serpent, the deceiver of the world, finally being thrown down with all his angels. You see, before God ever sent serpents into Israel's camp, a serpent had already been slithering around and infecting his people with the deadly poison of impatience and ingratitude and grumbling so that they spoke against God and his chosen serpent. God sent serpents to poison their mortal bodies that they might learn what deadly poison had infected them through Satan that ancient serpent. It's as if he let Satan loose on his people, giving him permission to afflict them as he had afflicted Job so that they might realize just how dangerous it is to play with snakes, specifically that one snake, Satan, who's crafty, but his poison is deadly and the wages of sin is death. The third, notice God's gracious solution for sin. A bronze serpent was lifted up on a pole as a sign of the cross of Christ. Once God's people recognize their sin, once Moses intercede for them, we, we see clearly God's desire for them to be healed. 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. And of his pure grace, he provided a means for his people and for us to be healed. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. And what's the very next verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This sign of the cross, this bronze serpent lifted up on a pole. You know, it's rather peculiar in a way. Why would another serpent be the source of healing? Why put a bronze serpent on the pole as a sign of the cross? Why not just lift up a cross or, or uh, maybe, maybe the red cross as a sign of healing? Why the serpent? Some have suggested it's because Christ our Lord, when he hung on the cross, was there in the likeness of sinful flesh. Others have suggested that it's because a bronze serpent is dead and lifeless. It can't harm anyone. A sign that on the cross, Satan, that old serpent, lost all his power. Whatever the case, this much is sure. Christ defeated Satan, that old serpent on the cross. In fact, 1 John 3.8 says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
In Genesis 3.15, as I've said, God promised, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, Christ allowed Satan to sink his fangs into his heel. And that put Jesus down in the grave as he collapsed from the death blow. But on the third day, he rose again as a sign that what looked like a defeat was actually a victory. Because that old serpent expended all his venom so that he has no more power over us. For by dying for our sins, Christ conquered sin and death so that Satan no longer has any power. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Hebrews 2, I think, is my favorite chapter. And if Lexi was here, she'd say, you say that about every chapter. But I've said this more than once. I love this chapter. Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took our nature upon himself, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Satan's like a snake that's been shot and is writhing around, biting everything in sight. But the death blow has been dealt, and he will bleed out, and he will die. And Romans 16 says there's a day coming when the church will share in Christ's victory. Paul says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We will share in a world free of temptation and evil. The tempter will be banished, and his poison will be felt no more. But finally this morning, notice the simple condition for salvation. They had to look. They had to look in order to live. We live in a world where so many people know the truth. People who, some people who sat in church their whole life. But they do everything they can to avoid looking. Their eyes are so fixated on their relationships and their possessions and their worldly pleasures, that Christ is right there. And they may see with their eyes and hear with their ears, but they don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. They're blinded by their sin, and they're not really looking. They've never really believed. Verse 7 tells us that Israel had already confessed their sin, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. But true confession, true repentance, true sorrow from sin must always be joined with the look of faith. There is no true faith without repentance, and there is no true repentance without faith. The condition is simple, but it's not easy. And that's why Jesus in his earthly ministry told people time and time again, You can't take time to bury your father so that you can get the inheritance. You can't continue with all of these possessions. You've got to be willing to hate mother and father if you're going to follow me. Not because we are saved by doing those things, but because unless we do those things, unless we stop looking and having our eyes fixed on the things around us, on our worldly pleasures, on our selfish priorities, we will never be able to see the Savior Let him who has eyes to see, see. And let him who has ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. Look and live. 
Sometimes it's not just unbelievers. Sometimes it's Christians who struggle to look. We sin and we know that we should confess that sin and be healed, but we avoid it. We put it off. Maybe it's because we're ashamed. Maybe it's because we doubt God's love for us. Will he really forgive me again? Maybe it's because we don't want to submit to the painful process of personal transformation. Maybe it's because we're stubborn and don't want to admit that we were wrong, that our attitude wasn't right, that we were impatient, ungrateful, or sinned with our tongue or in any other way. And this morning, whether you need to be saved or whether you're a Christian who has sinned and needs to be healed, don't avoid looking. Look and live. Take a long, hard look at the Christ of the cross. Look in faith with repentance. And as the old hymn says, life is offered unto you, hallelujah, eternal life your soul shall have. If you only look to him, hallelujah, look to Jesus who alone can save. Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. Tis recorded in his word, hallelujah, it is only that you look and live. Thank you for listening to the Holy Joy Sermon Podcast. Our labors for a holy, happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.